being hydrated enough is probably one of your biggest anti-inflammatory benefits in your body. And that's because we think, okay, I'm hydrated. Most people who are even trying to hydrate are not hydrated enough. You have to have enough water in your plasma so that it can carry nutrients and good stuff into your cells. And there's a compartment issue where around the cells, there's you know one concentration in the cells, another. But the most important thing really is in is good. But if you don't have enough fluid to go in and push the junk, the toxins, et cetera, out, you build up a lot of cellular toxicity, which just triggers inflammation because your body's trying to deal with it. So hydration is literally one of the best things that you can do for your inflammatory response. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm honored today to be joined by Dr. Paul Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine. He focuses on complex, infectious, chronic, and oncologic illnesses. Yes, that means cancer. In addition to his three decades of clinical experience, he served as head of the interventional arm of a U.S. NIH-funded human research trial using IV, vitamin C, and other therapies in cancer. He founded Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, a clinic focused on the care of patients with cancer and chronic diseases. He is co-author of the Hay House book, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies with Dr. Mark Stengler, as well as a co-author with Jack Canfield in the anthology Success Breakthroughs. He's a frequent speaker and writer for the medical community and has his own podcast, Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul. To date, he has 323 episodes out in the world as we're recording this, with each targeted on a specific topic, and many that are bite-sized at less than 15 minutes. So before we commence today's conversation, it's doubly important that I share a simple health disclaimer. When we dig into the science of nutrition and health, remember that this show is offered purely for informational purposes only. If you have a specific health condition and concern, you'll want to connect with your healthcare provider. Now, Dr. Anderson, Dr. A, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's good to be here. As we get started, I'm curious, what does nutrition without compromise mean to an integrative medical doctor like yourself? Well, when I think about that concept, I think that my way of looking at nutrition has always been that it starts with how we live, which then extends to how we eat and what we eat and what we allow into our body. And then we can get to other areas such as supplementing our diet, et cetera. So when you're really looking at the base level, what, what I've always tried to tell patients and tried to do in our family is to get the best either you know locally sourced or cleanest type of food products that we can have to get in, keep our bodies working well so we can digest those food products and get the micronutrients out of them and all the other good chemistry from the plants and all the other things we eat. And then you kind of have that as your base and you can work outward. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. And I just wish that 
in the current medical system, there was a little bit more focus on that inside out nutrition for health. We recently interviewed a doctor about culinary medicine. And I just thought the concept of that cater and tailor making food constructs for people to help them with their health conditions specifically. It's really, it's an interesting and emerging field. Now you've chosen to focus your work on some really challenging health conditions that can be pervasive, long-term, debilitating, degrading your emotional and your physical health. That is really hard work. So why did you choose that path? Well, I think that one thing I usually say in the shortest version of my story as a clinician is that I really started out, and this is three decades ago, uh, as a general practitioner. I had a family practice, saw babies through as old as you could live. And within the first two years of having that practice, because I was also doing a lot of integrative care and I was doing intravenous nutrient therapies and other things, people started to bring family members who had advanced cancers and who had seemingly undiagnosable or untreatable chronic illnesses. And so my practice really, in, in a very short amount of time, shifted to focusing on those uh, types of patients. And so really most of those three decades has been occupied with a split between advanced chronic illness of all types and then mostly advanced cancers. And then that led to being involved in doing research and then a lot of writing and a lot of training of other doctors. So it grew out of a need that was in my community and the probably a little bit of my own way of thinking and neurological bent towards uh, complex problem solving. Wow. So you follow things down the rabbit hole and it sounds like you really got into medicine for all the right reasons, just wanting to help people. So cheers to you. <laughs> that was the original goal. It's still the goal, I hope, right? Now, much of your recent work has, perhaps this isn't surprising, but it's focused on helping people who suffer from symptoms of long COVID with a myriad of problems. Many people suffer persistent fatigue, difficulty sleeping, or as I experienced, I, I escaped COVID for a couple of years. And then in May of last year, while I was at a podcasting conference in Florida, I came home with COVID. Now, I felt fine after about a week, like no real issue. And then every time I started to return to what was my normal activity, I got throttled back. The flu symptoms would return, the body aches. It literally felt like I got the flu again. And so I had to do something that was really abnormal for me because my weekend days would be like, I go for the hike with my dog for an hour in the morning. I do some gardening. I might even go to the gym later and push some weights and do some resistance training. And that just wasn't something I could do for a few months. So I've heard from another dear friend of mine who has had terrible sleeping issues. She has not slept a full night since she contracted COVID over a year ago and has struggled with various medications, other technological or physical approaches. She's now doing cold baths as a, for example, to help, I guess, shock her system back to its more primal state. I know just a tiny bit about how these things work. But I'm curious how your practice has really helped to address some of these things or what you're finding to be the most effective in long COVID cases. Yeah, long COVID could be an extremely long discussion, but to kind of get down to like the, the core, when we started to see people getting as sick as they were with COVID from the beginning, 
I had this sense that it would be like many of the other viral or chronic bacterial problems that we see with patients where the initial insult might be very bad or it might be mild, but the immune dysregulation that cause can cause a post-infectious syndrome. And so when people start to have what we call post-COVID, long COVID, post-COVID syndrome, all the names for it, and then they identified it, we were already treating it because it was in some ways no different from all of the other chronically ill people who had post-infectious illness. So I think that's the first thing to notice is that this long COVID has, and this is why there's so much disagreement in the bigger picture of medicine around long COVID between people saying it doesn't exist and people saying some other crazy things about it, is it's causing medicine to focus on something that they've really minimized for a hundred years. And that is post-infectious illness. Well, we were treating it all these years, so there's no surprise. The thing that people, and I do a lot of training for healthcare providers in this space, and one of the things that's hardest to get over with both the patient population and the healthcare population is you could go into something like COVID that completely, you can think of it as just jumbling up your immune function. And like you said, you go through the initial phase and that might be okay, flu-like, might be really bad, maybe you're hospitalized, and you get over that and you're thinking, well, okay, finally that's done. Then you start having all these problems. Well, what happens is during that initial phase, your immune system is responding really, really heavily to the insult, in this case, COVID. And COVID has some unique things that it does that are a little different from other infections where it maybe jumbles up your immune chemistry a little bit more, but you have a response to the acute problems, get better, quote unquote. But then your whole body has to shift around to this immune dysregulation that's not back to normal. So the part that's really, I think, hard or disturbing for patients and doctors is that can manifest in any system in your body. And you could have totally had no problems before the infection with those parts of your body. And so the doctor will assume, well, you didn't have a hormone problem before, so you can't have a hormone problem now, or you weren't sensitive to toxic things before, so you can't be sensitive now or whatever. So the big thing that we find with the more persistent long, I'm not talking about if you're getting better on your own anyway, but there's people we see who are six months, year, two years into long COVID symptoms. There's something deeper wrong there if it's hanging out that long. And it's basically initial infection immune response that tries to do the right thing because our body does have this way of dealing with infections, thankfully. But then that immune response gets sort of sidetracked. And then all of these core areas of your body function just don't kind of get back on track. So one of the biggest common denominators in many of the patients really is that, and this is in the neurology literature, like this is not some theory or something like that, that COVID actually can create, the infection can actually create a traumatic brain injury state with no injury. And so what some of the larger neurology publications are saying is, based on the chemistry changes from the infection and then the post-infectious changes, it's just like you hit your head really hard in an accident or something. And so now your brain is not auto-regulating. So you get things like sleep disturbance, changes in, you can get anxious, depressed, et cetera, pain syndromes, anything your brain does can not work correctly. So one of the things we find with that is to, and, and there's certainly much more to it than that, but trying to be as concise as possible, you have this injury that you can't see, which is real frustrating for your, your doctor and for you, because there's not great tests for this sort of thing. So 
what you have to do then is you have to treat something that's very hard to put your hands on. It's not like you broke your arm or you got a strep infection and we can swab it or something like that. So then we have to move towards, well, what can we do with your body? Now, of course, if there's an acute problem where you need a drug or something, you need that. But what can we do with your body to help it heal this thing that it didn't know was coming and doesn't know how to heal really without a little bit of help? And that's just one example. There are people who have hormone shifts after in the long COVID space that set them up for a more chronic picture where their energy will never return and all those things. So what I usually try and tell people, and especially the healthcare providers, is look, if, if they're getting generally better on their own, so you kind of think of small, medium, and large long COVID problems. If it's a smaller problem, you need body support. So those are things that you can do and you can guide people to, but they can do at home. So that's getting better sleep, making sure that they're eating, especially eating in a way that's as low inflammation diet as possible. So things that don't spike your insulin because spiking insulin creates a lot of inflammation. Other things like that, don't eat foods you're intolerant to, et cetera. Sleeping is huge. Now, if you, if you can't sleep like the person you mentioned, that's then puts you into the maybe medium or large category and you need some help with that. But you got to get people to sleep. You got to get them to eat correctly. And then you have to very slowly because as you experienced, and I actually, I had this same experience myself, coming out of an infectious illness, you can feel like you have 10% of the energy you used to. Or I remember very distinctly my own personal case, I would go try and get back in and get back in my gym uh, cycle or just do things outside and physically. And I remember I felt like, well, gee, I used to, if I was at a, a level seven before, I'm like at a one now. And it, it takes a while because what happens is your body, when you're that sick and these immune chemicals are all over the place, it sends messages out to the mitochondria and the nucleus of your cells, the energy producing areas to slow down because you need to recover. So it's basically taking your energy away from you. And that's a natural process. And so in order to get back from that, and when you have post-infectious illness like post-COVID, it's a, it's a harder inhibition that your body puts on it. So when it comes to the big things, sleep, diet, movement, exercise, et cetera, exercise has to sometimes come back very, very slowly. We call it a graded exercise tolerance. Again, super frustrating because if before you were sick, you could go and work out four times a week and do all this stuff, no problem. And now you do a tenth of it and you feel like you ran a marathon. You don't get, you know, your head can't wrap around that. So you have to retrain yourself in baby steps. But I think that if you have one of those, you know, if you think of small, medium, large COVID, you can heal yourself a lot by sleep, what you're putting into your diet and your body for food that doesn't inflame you, and then moving your body so it turns the signals back on that, okay, we're going to heal up here. When you have things that don't work, like your friend who's not sleeping or a lot of pain or something like that, that's when you kind of have to go and say, maybe I need something else looked at, or maybe I need to figure out why this is going on. And that's when something interventional might be the most help. Well, I'm wondering too, because there's a couple of treatments I've heard about for long COVID, like very long-term fasts or the deep cold water plunges, just as examples. So these are things that could be in an individual's control as part of their treatment plan. But even in these cases, would you advise that they work with their medical professional, a plan like that? Yeah, I think, as you said at the top of the program, that people should not take what I'm saying is medical advice. I'm giving information about what we do with patients. But I think when it comes to something like 
if you have long COVID that's been going on and it's not getting better and you need to kind of kick up your therapies, yes, I think that if you're going to do, so we've talked on our podcast about a lot of different things. We have a series on long COVID that's seemingly endless at this point. (laughs) Which you've broken down though into 15 minute bits for the most part, right? I keep it bite-sized, which is very hard for a professor to break it down. (laughs) But but helpful for somebody who's just trying to digest it, right? Yeah. I don't want to overwhelm people. So things like, but you mentioned like hot and cold therapies. Okay. So cold and getting retolerated to cold does things to your nervous system to help it kind of get back on track. Heat therapies, same thing. Fasting can be very profound, but you should really work with somebody who can monitor you and who knows about those therapies. And what I'll often tell folks, especially on the podcast where you don't know where it's going, is you want to find a practitioner who knows about that therapy if you're going to do it. Then that might not be your primary care doctor. In fact, in many cases, it's not. So, you know, if you're going to use herbal medicine or you're going to use Chinese medicine or you're going to use something else or you want to work with fasting or do something else, there are practitioners who are trained to do that. You don't need to do that, see them for everything. But if you're going to do fasting, you should be with somebody who can see if you're appropriate monitor you and help you through the process. Because I promise you, if you do fasting therapies, there's a lot that can go on. Same with hot and cold therapies. I mean, you can certainly do hot and cold at home (laughs) pretty easily. If you're near hot or cold water, that's pretty easy too. But really, you need somebody to help guide that because it's not so much the doing it, it's what happens if my body reacts in an a way I wasn't expecting to the therapy? Or what if I start fasting and it turns out my blood sugar is not really well controlled and I don't feel well? How do I deal with that? So yeah, it's very, very important to get some kind of guidance. Yeah. And the reason I mentioned that and bring it up is because new people are doing things like joining private Facebook groups for people who are COVID long haulers, as a for instance. And the individuals in there are bonding through community, but they might also be sharing what they're going through or the things they're doing. And then people in the audience might say, oh, well, I'll try that without getting the proper guidance or the proper plan for them. And that can produce negative results. Cold water plunges for short term or, hey, I took ice baths after running marathons. I'm familiar with doing that within my own home. You can just literally fill your tub with some ice and cold water and it's 32 degrees. It is cold right? But I'm not doing that for more than 15 minutes at a time. I don't really need a practitioner to help me with that, but it's a post-exercise treatment. And doing something like this, where the guidance could be very different, isn't the same. And so I really just want for people when it comes to these sorts of things, if they're going to try those therapies, that they, they work with someone, at least in the beginning, who can help them along the path. I wonder if there are specific foods, because you mentioned low, not necessarily low glycemic index, but foods that aren't going to really super spike your insulin levels, foods that are anti-inflammatory. I think generally people speak to the Mediterranean diet for something like that. But something that's rich in whole plant foods, a diet generally like that is also one that would be consistent with an anti-inflammatory diet. So are there any other tips that you would give people to help them guide themselves on the correct path there? Yeah, I think the first thing that really needs to be sort of removed is we all have individual sensitivities to food that we may or may not know. But for example, if there's a particular plant or animal category of food that you just don't feel well when you eat it, it doesn't matter how good it is for everyone else in the world, don't eat it because that in itself is inflammatory. Part of the reason you don't feel good when you eat particular things is that your body's having an immune response and you don't need any more of that. That's me and broccoli. And broccoli is supposed to be very good for you, right? (laughs) Right. 
Right. And you find this all the time with people. It's like, yeah, for everyone else, that's great. For you, it's not it's not your thing. The other thing is, yes, yeah, so we'll talk about in, inflammatory triggering like insulin, et cetera, in a second. But if you look at the plant kingdom that gives us food, if you eat those things, the foods that come from plants in as whole a form as you possibly can and alter them as little as you can within reason of you know culinary needs, they have not only so much nutritional value, but they also have so many nutrients, micronutrients, and plants give us so many polyphenols and, and flavonoids and you know all the other good chemistry that are sort of extra to what we would call micronutrients. Those things in and of themselves are immunoregulatory. They feed our body. And for the most part, most of the plant kingdom is not going to trigger a lot of these inflammatory things if you're not sensitive to it, especially in the healing phase after insult or whatever. I try and drive people towards looking at that as kind of a base. And then you can look at the types of fats that you are getting in and how good or bad or clean or inflammatory those are, and other protein sources. And you can kind of build outward from there. Now, when we talk about like insulin triggering, if you had to pick one thing you do with your diet that has the most inflammatory effect, I mean, aside from eating a poison or something you're allergic to, et cetera, it is triggering insulin. And people think, well, you'd be dead without it. It's true. But what happens is in the human body, if you eat things that trigger too much insulin, you use what you need and the extra doesn't do its job on your uh, glute receptors. The extra insulin runs around your body and turns on inflammatory switches. For example, the fatty acids that we need to pull out of our cell membranes and you know, make the uh, series like one and three cytokines that come from omega-3s and stuff like that. It turns on enzyme systems that shunt that process into inflammatory lipids. And there's a reason for that, but it's not what you need, right? So your body does it, but the insulin that's running around extra actually hijacks your lipid biology. Somebody who consumes a good balance of omega-3s and omega-6s, like let's say they are closer to that one-to-one ratio, that rare individual, maybe they're a three-to-one omega-6 to omega-3. If they were to consume something that really spikes their blood sugar, it could negate some of the positive effects of having that balanced diet. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it really does. Now, the better you are on the front end with the intake, the better it's going to be downstream. But without getting too deeply into it, there's these things that we need to process the fats that come in called delta desaturases. And there's a particular one that is usually quiet, and it's sort of in the middle of series one. And insulin in excess turns it on. And so all that good, for example, omega-3 substrate suddenly is going down into a pathway that's not where it's supposed to be. It's inflammatory. So that's why I usually just tell people, look, and here's the bottom line. If I'm focusing the basically the carbohydrates I get from whole plant materials that have a lot of nutrients and fiber and flavonoids and you know all the goodies, I'm going to have a real hard time triggering a whole lot of excess insulin. On the other hand, if you look at the standard North American way of eating and most of what I get in that's in the carbohydrate category is processed, isn't from whole plants. It's going to be the A train right over to your pancreas, just making insulin. So yeah, so that is a pretty huge thing. I used to always send people to look up the internet. You can find anything, right? <laughs> you don't know if it's always true, but. 
<laughs> it's not always true, but yeah. But uh, like glycemic index, there's there's a hundred sites and they all say the same thing. But there's something called the insulin index. Now that's a little bit easier. You can look at okay, these foods less likely, these foods more likely. And the bottom line is probably all stuff your grandma told you to eat anyway that are on the the better end of the spectrum. So really like your diet and being able to move your body and sleeping are three huge shovels you can use to dig out of a chronic illness. Now, people get frustrated because they don't work quickly. And if it's like exercise and you're not used to exercise, you got to go slow because you'll feel worse for a while. But long term, even with all the interventional stuff that we do with really chronically ill people, the ones who get on the other side and stay better are the people who have controlled that sort of the basics of their diet and sleep and you know all that. Well, this is very consistent with everything that Dr. Joel Furman shared with our community around his work specifically on getting people to a more whole foods, plant-based diet where meat is a condiment. Necessarily eat it the same way. You're not sitting there with a slab of steak or a hamburger as frequently and definitely not as frequently. <laughs> So I'm also curious because you mentioned, and I know this may be Greek to some people, but when you start to talk about desaturases and cytokines and prostaglandins and all these things that are triggered by omega-3s, alpha-linolenic acid or linolenic acid, that we essentially are, when we're getting everything from a plant source, if we're not consuming fish, if we're not getting a direct source of EPA and DHA, we really have to have certain enzymes that work to give us to translate all of those nutrients into the end products, the EPA and DHA, which are used to regulate a lot of systems within the body, which are integrated into structural components of the cells, which help with things like synaptic firing in your brain and <laughs> mental clarity. I mean, omega-3s do a lot, as do omega-6s. But given that you might have some issues with an insulin spike, you might not have the perfect diet, and ultimately you're in some immunological issue if you're taking an omega-3 in its form with EPA and DHA, are you somewhat protected and ensured that you're going to create a more anti-inflammatory state? Yeah. So that kind of gets to the concept that we shared in the beginning, which is, you know, of course, you do what you can, everything you can with your diet, putting it into your body. But in most cases in North America, and there are certainly exceptions to this, many people are not eating in a way that gets them enough either of substrate for omega-3 and maybe omega-6 or direct omega-3. So then either changing your diet so you get enough or taking some, which in most people is what's required, at least in where we live, is very necessary. And if people feel like lipid biology is difficult as a patient, your doctor probably struggles with it too. <laughs> So I actually teach it to doctors. Sometimes I'll actually use cartoons just so that they don't stop listening, stuff like <laughs> that. So you think about it and you think, well, why? Okay, well, if I eat fish, why is that maybe a faster way to get omega-3? Well, it's because the fish run the food that they eat through their system, which has these saturates, et cetera. So when you eat them, they've already converted it to EPA and DHA, and that's closer to making the anti-inflammatory cytokines that we need. And algae itself, some of the algae strains produce their own EPA and DHA. Right. Yeah. Some of the sources for non-animal omega-3s are from algae, et cetera. So I think that's important to remember. So for the average person, having a good, clean omega-3 supplement can be really a wonderful baseline to kind of do what you can in addition to your diet, they can go along. What are supplements meant to do? Be a supplement to a healthy diet. 
But one of the themes that people have heard throughout this podcast and that they'll hear from medical professionals like yourself is, hey, you can throw (laughs) some supplements on top of a terrible diet and still not have a good outcome. And so another theme I often share with people and just to really help it sink in is like consume a little less of these processed oils, the seed oils. I mean, even going to the store and getting some salad dressing because you're trying to increase your intake of fruits and vegetables and in creative salads, most of it is full of seed oils. So you're getting canola oil, soybean oil, processed oils that are high in omega-6 and very, very low in any omega-3s. In fact, omega-3s have been removed from those oils in order to improve its shelf stability. So what do you do? You make your own salad dressing at home, maybe substitute olive oil or avocado oil, which have omega-9s in them. A healthy fat, it's still fat, right? But at least it's not going to throw off the balance so much that you're in this inflammatory cascade constantly too. Or as Dr. Furman says, you know, use nuts and make your own salad dressing and and do some really creative things with your blender. I mean, he's got recipes in his book on immunity that are pretty incredible too. So I'll point people to that. Yes. Thank you so much for that context. I do want to bring up here, we are sponsored by Orlo Nutrition. So if people listening to this podcast, if you are ready to go and try an omega-3, You can peruse the omega-3, DHA, and prenatal DHA products available at orlonutrition.com. These are in the polar lipid form, so they're more bioavailable than a standard fish oil or algae oil. And this can mean that the omega-3s get straight to work in your body. They don't repeat up on you because they don't create the same aldehyde byproducts, so you don't have to have that fishy burp. Now, you can go to orlonutrition.com today, and we do have a coupon code for our listeners, which is NWC10 for an extra 10% off your order at checkout. So just use that code NWC10 for Nutrition Without Compromise 10 at orlonutrition.com. Okay, recentering. Let's talk about the big, I call it the giant in the room, inflammation. Inflammation has been the topic of a lot of focus since COVID erupted, and Maybe a big part of the reason that our Americans responded so poorly to COVID overall, and so many people got so sick, and unaddressed health issue that relates, which is connected to increasing obesity and challenges of losing weight because of an inflammatory state. So I would just like to know what you think people can do to set themselves up for success long-term, prevent severe COVID cases from occurring in themselves, or at least do the give themselves the best shot. And also just understanding that people are getting second and third infections at this time. And so since they might be getting that second or third infection of COVID, you know, we need to address the inflammation issue. And it's not just omega-3s there. It's not just insulin. It's um it's a lot to do with lifestyle. So how would you counsel broadly our audience to help tackle that gorilla, big giant sitting in the corner in the shadows. Yeah. And I think it's good to call it giant in the room or whatever, because another thing that is hard to wrap your head around is you can have people who appear even with their lack of disease or presence of disease, but appear physically very different. And one group might look healthier and have less diseases on their list. Others may look less healthy and have more diseases, and they will all be equally inflamed potentially. Because inflammation is not one thing that happens. It's a whole lot of things. And so your body might do inflammation one way and another person's a different way. So certainly we see this pattern, you know, with COVID and other infections where if you come into it 
and you're super inflamed and you have all the things, diseases, you may not do very well. But then we see people who look healthy, but really in the underlying uh, biology in their body, they're just as inflamed and they don't do very well either. So I think that when it comes to thinking of those things, then there's certainly genetic things that can shift that too. The things that really help naturally with your body to deal with inflammation, the first thing, and there's even now research coming out, which is just proves what seems logical in the cancer world to show this, but being hydrated enough is probably one of your biggest anti-inflammatory benefits in your body. And that's because we think, okay, I'm hydrated. Most people who are even trying to hydrate are not hydrated enough. You have to have enough water in your plasma so that it can carry nutrients and good stuff into your cells. And there's a compartment issue where around the cells, there's you know one concentration in the cells, another. But the most important thing really is in is good. But if you don't have enough fluid to go in and push the junk, the toxins, et cetera, out, you build up a lot of cellular toxicity, which just triggers inflammation because your body's trying to deal with it. So hydration is literally one of the best things that you can do for your inflammatory response. All the things that we spoke about with regard to eating are another thing that you can do. The next thing though is what's hanging out in the area around your cell or in your cell membranes or inside the cell. And that has to do specifically with antioxidants. Okay. Now, antioxidants, the primary ones are glutathione, vitamin E, and vitamin C, and they all back each other up. So if you get low in one of them, and the one we don't make in our body very easily is vitamin C, we don't make it at all, is vitamin C. And when we get sick, our vitamin C levels basically go to zero. So if you don't have enough of that in, all of your antioxidants slow way down. In the recovery period after being ill, it's hard to get those back up and get them working. One of the things that we may run out of time for, but we had thought about talking about was if you look at the way that spirulina works, for example, one of the things in research about that is it has this nice way of keeping the vitamin E, vitamin C, and glutathione little family working, which is one of the big things about lowering inflammation just naturally the way your body does it. And that's a very important thing, especially if you've been sick, you want to think of, well, that's that system took a big hit because it was overworking, and now we need to get it working back again. So if I've got enough hydration, good first step. Next step is I need those antioxidants to be working. They need to work together. So we need anything we can that improves their activity. Then you can get to specific things like what your cell membranes do with the fat balance we were talking about, for example. That's also that's sort of the next level. Well, if somebody is working to self-treat themselves, at least I'm not saying like they've had and need to be in care, but they're just trying to set themselves up for success. So they might already have heard that they should take supplements like omega-3s, vitamin D. They may have heard something about glutathione. They may have heard something about vitamin C, just because people speak about immunity with vitamin C across the board. But there are a lot of ways that people can bring these things into their diet. And I think there's some disagreement both in the literature and with medical doctors about how much vitamin D you might need, as a, for example, to help support your immune system. So do you have a standard like, hey, I think this amount is safe, just one 2000 IU of vitamin D a day, something like that? Or at what point do you want people to really be seeking help from their doctor when they're self-medicating with vitamin D and, and these other things? Yeah. And it's sort of an effect, I think, of the media coverage of COVID. And then, you know, people like 
me and the 1100 other people talking about stuff you can take. What we're seeing now is sort of a wave of people when they get tested, their vitamin D levels are too high or their zinc levels are too high. And you find out, well, the only mineral they've been taking for two years is zinc, which is it's good to have zinc, but it has to be in balance. It's good to have vitamin D. It has to be in balance. Honestly, before COVID, it was very common for us to say, if you're taking two to 5,000 international units of vitamin D a day, and you're the average North American person, you're probably not going to overdose yourself. That's sort of a maintenance dose. But even before that, like vitamin D absorption and the way your body metabolizes kind of complex, just like the fat stuff, because it's a fat-soluble nutrient. So I think the most important thing is if you've never taken it before, you have a probably a big window where you can take those doses. The problem comes if you're doing a maintenance dose, like two to 5,000, and you're super low, it takes quite a while to build that up. It's like three months before you even test again, right? Which is why, yeah, that's why it's so safe. The only thing I would say is if you've been taking it above those levels, certainly for a long time, you should probably just have it checked once a year, have your vitamin D level checked. I ask for it with my annual and I'm always a little bit lower than I think I will be. I'm like, oh, I've been supplementing and I'm getting out in the sun. But even though I'm pale, I have Mediterranean skin and I guess I just don't make vitamin D as well as a lot of people. Or I don't think about the fact that I'm mostly covered and They say if you're not exposing your belly for 15 minutes or so, you may not actually produce enough vitamin D on your own. I will say that the immunity boost formula that we created with Orlo is spirulina, just 1,000 IU of vitamin D, thinking also to this, it's safe for everybody all ages because it's a small amount. But then to your point about zinc and minerals, we also have a smattering of B vitamins in there and they're balanced. And I think so often we look to one vitamin, right? Like, oh, I'm going to take vitamin B12 as just one example, but we don't think about what that does to the other B vitamins and how they have to be in kind of a synchronous combination in order to work best in your system. And so while I say this, I'm also just going to mention most vegans don't get enough vitamin B12, so you should be supplementing Most vegans also don't get enough omega-3, so you should be supplementing. And you can also check these levels in your annual or even by soliciting something like a blood spot test from Omega Quant for, I think those are $50 for the low tier test to just see what your levels are and then you're not guessing anymore. So depending on your insurance, that might be cheaper than going through your medical office. Sometimes these are things you just have to ask about. So to the point about spirulina, I am curious if you had the chance to to look at the literature and why it might work as well as it does um, in support of our immune system and energy levels. Yeah, I've certainly read a lot of research about spirulina. I'm not a spirulina expert uh, by any means, but <laughs> there's a lot to know there. But I think that the thing that I kind of come away from when I read papers, and especially there's some very good summaries that have been written in the last five years around spirulina, where they've looked at a lot of data and said, well, this is what we see here, here, and here. It's kind of nice. You don't have to read the other 300 papers. But the takeaway that I see, which is common to a lot of things that come from plants, is we kind of have this notion, I think it's a very Western notion, but that's who we are. So I guess that's normal of, oh, we need to, you know, boost our immune system, or we need to boost this, or we're always boosting things. The way your body works, really what you need is balance. And so deficiencies cause balance, and excess causes balance, but they're very fluid. 
And so in the plant kingdom, what you often see with things that are helpful with immune and inflammatory problems is they're not as much like immune boosting or anti-inflammatory or whatever as they are leveling to the system. Because the system is very complex and the more level it is, the more it can do its job. So for instance, the immunobiology, when you give people spirulina, all of the studies show that it does particular things with your innate immune system, like natural killer cells and cytokines that either pro or anti-inflammatory, all that stuff. But what it also shows is that the quote unquote sicker a person is, so maybe the more need they have, more out of balance they are, the more you're likely to see that sort of thing, which is also what we see with curcumin and all the other plant things too. So I think it's really important. And then there's, of course, a lot of nutritional value that's just naturally there in spirulina. Well, antioxidants that aren't present in our diet otherwise, like it's just hard to get enough. Right. Certainly that. And then also just supporting your own innate antioxidant system, which it does very well. So I think that it's as something that you could put into your body that you're probably not putting in through any other means. It's got a very broad ability to be supportive through just returning the ability to balance back. And that, again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with long COVID. People get really upset and frustrated because they felt like they were super healthy and then they get this long COVID that's not going away. They probably weren't as healthy as they thought they were just because we live in a tough world. We're dealing with toxic levels that I didn't have when I was a child and my parents never had, you know, a hundred years ago. So we have a bigger challenge, you know, that our food supply is not great. It's like, what do we say? If you're eating a credit card worth of plastic a week, I mean, that is alarming, right? These are not things that are food. And Right. You know, where our grandparents may have done a disservice to us by introducing trans fats and, you know, highly processed fats, like partially or fully hydrogenated fats, which are trans fats. I mean, they're one chemical molecule away from plastic, essentially. You can put a tub of margarine of, let's just say it's the shortening, whatever, you know, it's the same thing. Throw it in your garage on a hot day, leave the garage door open. No bugs will fly into it. But you do the same with butter and there's going to be a fly on that thing within seconds. Yeah. And so this should be an indication, food, not food. But we're at a point now where it's almost impossible to not eat non-food things because they've just become a part of the foods that we consume. So going whole foods, plant-based, trying to buy local, shopping at your farmer's market, trying new produce, being creative in the kitchen. These are all things that can help. Now, I know that we're at almost the hour point, but I wanted to ask you a question that is perhaps a little bit deep and just get your perspective because you've done so much work in cancer research and now with COVID too. Are there lessons that we can bring from that world or that we are bringing from that oncological world into treatment of things like COVID? If we had another three hours, it'd be a great <laughs> answer. But I think if I'm going to just really shorten it up, there are a lot of parallels. Now, that's not to say it's the same thing, obviously. But one of the things, for example, that we focus on now a lot more than we did 10 or certainly 20 or 30 years ago is health in survivorship. So people who get into a durable remission with their cancer or have no evidence of disease or something, their goal and the healthcare provider's goal should be, let's not only live, that's first goal, but let's make the body as healthy as possible so it's resistant to recurrence, all that stuff. And then you live longer, but you live with a good quality of life. Health span, right? Yeah, your health span improves. And we're certainly, we know more about that now, like how to get people there, et cetera. It's a tough job, but we know. 
when it comes, especially I think to long COVID, but also preparing yourself for whatever may come, because I can promise you COVID as an infection is going to be just like the flu and the common cold, where it's now part of the human experience. You're going to get it over and over and over and over. It's not. And uh, what we hope is it'll keep degenerating to just be an irritation over time. But there's going to be other new things that come along. Like This isn't the last thing we're going to have to deal with as humans. Swine flu, bird flu, <laughs> Ebola. <laughs> right. I mean, it's everything old is new again now. So I think really the two things that are critical, and it's a downer to think about, well, I might get this again, but you will. One is making yourself a small target. And so that's the prevention side. So that, yes, we're all going to get something at some point. It's how our immune system gets challenged. So smaller target means, doesn't mean I'm not going to get sick. It means I'm going to weather the illness as best I can. But then also, if I do get sick and then I do kind of get into this funk where it's a post-infectious illness, like long COVID, it's recovering my body function so that my quality of life and my function returns back to normal, which can be a chore if you actually get into that long COVID side. So the tenants are the same. It's just that making yourself a small target and looking at not really prevention because you're going to, if it's infectious, you may be exposed and get it, but it's what kind of experience am I going to have with that illness? So that's the prevention side. And those are all the things that we talked about, the big three, like sleeping and uh, how we eat, moving our body, all of that. But then also in the recovery side, you have to do those things, but then you often have to add on to them so you can come out the other side and build up. It's exactly the same as if I'm teaching someone cancer prevention. It's the same tenets as we teach them to do in recovery and having a good health span and survivorship. It's just you got a lot more work to do once you've already had the disease. It's exactly the same with something like COVID. Prevention, making yourself small target, it's all the good things you do. Recovery from long COVID, you just got more work to do because your body sort of is in a hole you have to dig out of. And it may take longer than you think it will, like in my case or even in your own. Like Always takes longer than you imagine it will, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. you mentioned feeling like maybe lifting that weight or whatever. It's like you might be able to do 10% of what you did before. It was different for me. I could do all the things at the same level. I'd only been sick for a little bit, but I would then get throttled back. So I was continuing because I felt good. I felt good. And then I would get throttled back. So to understand, even though I felt okay, that I still had to act like I had it for a good solid six weeks without returning to normal activity. Like that was mind numbingly difficult for me because I am a goer and I fell out of my gym routine in a certain way that I'm still struggling to catch back up to because. I was a seven day a weeker and I had my routine and yeah, I had a day that was fairly light, but it was also my escape from my daily routine of rearing young children. I'd go to the gym for a couple hours. It would be a break. And so I find that I'm now struggling with turning to that level of balance to, to claiming those couple of hours every day just for me. And so I know that is critically important for <laughs> my long-term health. And I think that would be a closing thought from me to the audience. Do you have any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share before we part? Well, I think if you are somebody who unfortunately is dealing with long COVID, especially if it's nothing seeming to budget, like you just said, you have to give yourself a little more space and grace for healing because it's not going to be like other things you may have experienced, which is frustrating, but true. And then the other thing is, 
if you truly are in a cycle where you're not getting better and you feel like you're doing as much as you can and you got to look, but find somebody who is working with post-infectious illness patients or long COVID patients and get some advice from a healthcare perspective about what else could I do or what could I add to what I'm doing. So do as much as you can for yourself. But if things are really stuck, get somebody to take a look at what's going on with you and, and give you some pointers and direction and maybe some other treatment. Well, thank you so much for that beautiful sum up. I've so enjoyed our conversation today and I hope that you can come back in the future and we can dig into another topic together. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. To find out more about Dr. Paul Anderson, visit dranow.com. That's D-R-A-N-O-W.com. And check out his podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's called Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul. I'll be sure to include links to both of these specific sites with show notes and in our expanded blog at orlonutrition.com. So with that, I want to thank again, Dr. A for joining us today. If you learned something, I hope that you'll subscribe to Nutrition Without Compromise on your favorite podcasting platform. While you're at it, please give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, and even write us a review. This will help more people discover the show so that they can achieve their best health naturally. Our complete blog, including transcripts and direct links to Dr. Paul Anderson and his podcast are always going to be available on that site again, orlonutrition.com. And as a reminder, all of our listeners receive an additional 10% off at orlonutrition.com by using NWC10. You can check out that immunity boost with spirulina as well as our omega-3 products. This podcast is all about serving you. So if you'd like us to dive deeper into specific topics or have questions that you'd like to see us address, send us a note on social channels at orlonutrition, or you can email us directly to hello at orlonutrition.com. As we close today's show, I hope that you'll raise a cup with me, improve your hydration, ensure that you're getting enough water each day. As I say in my closing words, here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.